Welcome to the Granta Podcast, where we have Neil Mukherjee and Patrick DeWitt in conversation. They discuss their books under Major Domo Minor and the lives of others, subconscious influence, the power of the exclamation mark, and love. When I was uh, little, I read in a newspaper somewhere that Graham Greene woke up every morning and wrote 500 words before 12, and then he hit the bottle of whiskey. Uh, I don't go down that far. I try and write 500 words in a normal sort of eight-hour working day. For me, it's, it's, it's somewhat similar. I try to get around 500 words a day as well. By the way, I write longhand on paper. I enter stuff later into the computer. Yeah. Usually when after six or seven months of writing, uh, I have this massive panic attack that the house is going to burn down and the master document, the paper, is going to get burned. So I stay up for four nights and I sort of type in my stuff. And that's a good edit stage. Yeah. Something happens. Again, I can call it only a gear change. When, the, when you feel that the book is using you to be written. Yeah. The only sort of quirk in my process is I finish, you know, eat lunch, have the rest of my day where I do whatever it is I do. And then at night, I look at what I worked on in the morning and I fiddle with it in a, in a somewhat reckless way, I think. And these are two distinctly different writers. Absolutely. One yeah. is an editor. Well, the morning person is, 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 very, is, is very buttoned up and he's very serious. Yeah. And the person at night is obviously much freer and the ideas come at night. And so I make a big mess of what I worked on in the morning yeah. at night. And then in the morning I sort of look at what this fool in the night has yeah, done yeah, yeah. and I clean up what he's... Yeah. the mess he's made, but it's a happy collaboration, you know. But it could easily become Penelope's web, no? Yeah, sometimes it gets away from me. And sometimes I'll prefer writing at night, so I'll sort of shirk my writing in the morning and look forward to the night. Yeah. But then it, begets, it gets too, too furry, you know, and you need to trim it back. Yeah. And I, I, I don't look at what I've written, because if I do, I would never go forward, I feel. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I'm terrified of that. I know that there's an editor at the end of it who's going to fix it. Yeah. Uh, um, but then when I'm, when, when, when I'm typing things out after like a few months of having written on paper, that's when I become your night person. Yeah. And then I think, oh my God, I can't believe this came out of me. Yeah. Like, so embarrassment, yeah. great, great anxiety and, and, and despair. This time around, I found that I did get lost in the center part of the book. So I did something new, which was with a typewriter, I typed out every scene that I had, numbered it on three by five cards, and I made a big sort of on, on the wall in front of my desk, you know, just so I could see the, the novel as a, as a whole. You could see the whole sh physical shape. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And it was this big sort of circular mess, one, two, three, four, five, down two. And there was all these holes where I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And in staring at this, not for a matter of moments, but more days, I came to realize what should go in the holes. And then also there was all these competing storylines that had to go. It felt very much like um, an act of desperation. And I, f you know, because I don't work in that way. I work sequentially and I work yeah, day yeah, by day and yeah. you just sort of fill it in as you go along. So to do this, I thought, well, I must be failing. This book is getting away from me. And you way. fixed it. And I fixed it, yeah. Do you think you'll be doing it more often? I don't know. I don't know. I had, I had a feeling, I, I felt dirty when I was doing it. It felt like a trick or some kind, you know, like something you would learn in, a, in an MFA program or something. And I felt you've taught this trick to me now. Now I'm going to do it and feel dirty too. It works. It doesn't matter if it makes you feel dirty. It was, it was effective this one time. I don't know if I lean on it every time, but if I'm ever lost again, I would try it again. I'm trying to get away from realist narratives and trying to write something that is totally exploded in the sense that the book is made of five parts and you can read the five parts in any order you want. But there's a prologue and an epilogue and, there are, and the central bit of the story will be three strands and they're not related to each other at all. Um, and I feel that this may come in very useful yeah. because 
to if if you're handling something of of which which is sort of disparate, then having the shape in front of you may may be helpful. So yeah. Um, so let's come to Walzer because you have an epigraph from him. Yeah. It is a very painful thing having to part company with what tor torments you and how mute the world is. Mm -hmm. Exclamation mark. I love that exclamation mark. I do too. So much. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, that really it's, it's makes it, it for me. This is one moment in 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 uh, using that much abused thing, an exclamation mark, yeah. and it actually means something here. Yeah. No yeah. editor would ever say, "Take it out." Yeah. It's, 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 yeah. So. This is someone who it seems to me was probably never bored for the briefest moment. Especially more and more, I find that there's a a, a stance popular among people our age and then younger of of just sort of distance and nihilism, and and while there's the opposite of that, so it's this really delicate mixture of the troubling and then just the sort of the sublime. I could see Lucy thinking this and using that exclamation point. And, and, and often when an epigraph comes to you, uh, it could actually give you a ruling spine or a ruling metaphor for the whole work. Yeah. And I feel this has happened very sort of harmoniously in the, in, in the book. So. Something about it is such a simple sentence. But it, it sums up so much for me about this story, but then also just... Um, but there's a gear shift in those, in those two small sentences yeah, as well. Yeah. There is something wonderful going on, and then there's suddenly there's a slap of the philosophical observation and, and, and how mute the world is. Yeah. Um, and I find this also very, very engaging about Walzer's work, is that he keeps you on your toes all the time. Yeah. From sentence to sentence, things can change. The inner weather, the mood, yeah. you know, the way interiority interacts with the reader. Mm -hmm. I find I find he's constantly wrong-footing me. Yeah, but it's never malicious, and that's important to me. Can I pick up on two uh, interesting words that he used, uh, well-meaning and malicious? Yeah. Um, do you think Under Major Demo Minor is a well-meaning and unmalicious book? Uh, it's certainly an aspiration of mine. Right. I can't say okay. if I succeeded or not. I like to think that Lucy's well-meaning. Yes, I, I think he's well-meaning. In, in, in fact, you set him up to be this sort of lying, immature boy. Yeah. And it turns out he's not that at all. Yeah. But there are lots of things going on with malicious acts in the book, which you find a sort of, you know, antechamber of innocence for. Uh, um, but not so the antics the Baron, the Baroness, the Duke, Tush's Count and Countess get up to. The very dark figures out of some kind of... Um, I don't know, a masked ball or, yeah. uh, or a throwback to some kind of uh, um, a malignant carnival or something. There, there are all these sort of undersides in European high culture. Yeah, I'm thinking of the, the orgy scene in, in particular now and then the question of, of my, my intention in terms of do I have malicious intent for the reader? No, no, no. I, I, I don't, I'm not saying that you're accusing me of it, but it's something that came up in my mind because I think that's one of those scenes that tests a reader's ability to ingest filth, you know? And right before this scene, which is a scene, for those who haven't read, where all the aristocrats in, the, in this grand ballroom have essentially an S&M orgy, Lucy, the protagonist, and his love interest, Clara, have a sexual moment in the same room, the difference being that this is a moment of pure love and shared mutual respect. It's the far opposite of what follows just after. Of, of, of the many things that, that, it, that the book is about, it's, it's about uh, love and its uh, uh, either redemptive or destructive capacities, or sometimes both together. Um, whereas what is acted out 
it's a kind of perversion of the love, as if you, as, as if you have turned the jewel around you, and, you, and you've seen its diseased backside in some ways. Well, I, at the outset I knew I wanted it to be a love story. I think I had it in my mind that it would be a, a, a much sweeter love story. It is a very sweet love story. Parts of it are, certainly. But then the other characters began to come into focus for me, and these are people who have been undone by love. Um, an unrequited love, or, or a love that, that, that simply passes on. Um, I began to think of the different types of love in my life, and why some persevere, and why some, some, some don't, why some, why, why some make it, and why some, some vanish. My takeaway of the, from the whole thing is, is just um, a recognition that love is obviously very powerful, but it's also something that isn't to be trifled with. It's something that's potentially very damaging and, and deadly even. What I'd originally meant was, was to, to, to write this really um, unadorned and sweet um, and non-ironic love story, and I think I avoided irony. But this less pleasant element crept up in, in the telling of the story, and I felt it, it only just to uh, address that as well. Um. You also use deliberately archaic locutions like "Thus did he find himself plummeting again in love," and 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 I found this very endearing actually. But uh, th there are several people here I haven't heard their names. You know the 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 authors you're having a conversation with in this book. Well, I should say with the, with this with this list of authors, it's not so much that some are over, it's an overt influence stylistically right. and so much more just sort of like a general influence or, or, or people that I consider to be guiding lights. Okay, um, so for example, um, uh, I don't know who C.F. is. He's a contemporary comics artist. Okay. And um, his work is just um, really unique and singular and strange, deeply strange and um, often very perverted. But Harry Matthews, I've never heard of him. Oh. But, the, but, but the people, no, so tell me a little bit more about Harry Matthews because you went, ah, oh, when I said uh, He's just a, a wonderful, a wonderful um, writer. Um, he's a contemporary of Gilbert Sorrentino. He was a member of the, the um, is it Wilopo or Ulipo? It's a French Ulipo, literary yeah, society. Yeah, of course. The so Harry Matthews was, was his, his, one of his best friends with um, George Perec. Okay, yeah. And he that whole kind of... Ken O'Perrick, that gang. Yeah, you know, really yeah. yeah. So he wrote a book called Tluth, T-L-O-O-T-H, that I think I, I had it in my mind when I was working on this book. Right. Um, somebody that I uh, admire very much and recommend highly. I think you'd like it. I'm, I'm going to go home with a big list. And um, But Dennis Cooper? Dennis was the first novelist I ever met. I sat next to him at a wedding in Los Angeles. Right. And he was like this exotic creature to me. You know, he's like yeah. a published writer who had right. just come back from Italy on a book tour. And it was right. just... And he really demystified the, the novelist for me in, in the loveliest way. He just sort of brought me down to earth. And this is, mm. you know, lo novelists aren't godlike. No. They're, you do the, it's work, you know what I mean? Yeah. You do the work and then, so. Yeah. And, yeah. and so, so many forces of influences come to converge on any particular book by any writer worth reading that it's good to have this kind of map laid out or, or a partial map laid out. But, you know, in, in a given work, I think this is the book where I, where I looked at other authors, knowing I was doing it. I was, you know, I, I would get stuck here or there, or I just, as a part of the process, I found myself rereading bits of Harry Matthews or Walzer or whomever, all the people that are on that list. So but, where does it sit for you? Do, do you work in that way? Do you, do you find yourself rereading people that you have admired, or, or are you on the hunt for influence when you're working on a piece? Um, let me answer this question in a slightly roundabout way, which is that um, 
Are you always sure what influences you? No. Okay, you see, I feel influences happen at the level of an author's mind that sure he has no access to. Yeah. I can tell you who I like reading. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I, can, I can give you a whole list. I mean, you know, we have a lot of convergence. I love Eudora Welty, who makes it, it, it to your list. I think she's an astonishing writer. Um, I love um, an English novelist who died in 2000 and who is being sort of rediscovered, uh, Penelope Fitzgerald. I, I, I think she's an astonishing writer. But for, for the lives of others, the obvious person I was having a conversation with was Thomas Mann's Buddenbrooks, actually. Mm. But you know, because I'm, I'm, because I'm an Indian, I'm, I'm automatically slotted into the kind of family saga writer territory. I, I often think if I were to write a novel set in Mars involving abstract thought molecules, people would read it as a family saga as well. <laughs> And no one talks of Buddenbrooks as a family saga, which it centrally is, you yeah. know, because he's a German writer, no one to think of it. Yeah. I suppose Tolstoy must have been sitting there at the bottom of my head somewhat in the way one always falls back on, on, on him when one is sort of moving large casts of characters around, whether consciously or unconsciously, or even if you don't have Tolstoy in your head, uh, other people say, you know, there's Tolstoy going on because it's you're writing within a certain tradition. So, yeah. whether, so, yeah. um, but you know, I was noticing from 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 your list of um, were they just markers of influence, or were you also uh, interested in giving out a signal that your work is part of a larger conversation? I definitely wanted to acknowledge that I feel like I'm taking part in a tradition. I also was keen to tip off people, either readers, reviewers, whomever, to the fact that these are the influences. I found that reviewers like to assign you influences. And I find that this is absolutely not working. <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm saying there's a list yeah. uh, in the back saying this is who influenced the book. Do you know, I think that could be because people read novels carelessly nowadays, I think. Also, when they get to the acknowledgments, they may not even get to the bits which are part of the novel, actually, where you're saying, these are my influences, these are the people I'm having a conversation with. Or it could be that they do not know who these people are. If influences are nowadays not one-to-one -one correspondences, people find it difficult to work how shadows and cross-hatchings and stuff occur behind the book. It's not as though I would expect any reviewer to read all those people and then draw the... But hopefully you would, you would think that maybe they would be familiar with some of them. We talked about subconscious influence. I found this thing happened right after I finished this book where I discovered Wa. I'd never read Evelyn Wa before. And I read it right after I'd finished it. It was my, my first book after I finished. I was going to relax, you know, enjoy a book. And I read, I think it was Decline and Fall. Yeah. And I just thought, this is essentially exactly what I was trying to do. <laughs> right. Wa belongs on that list, even though I didn't read him until after the book was finished. No, there's a, there's a joke that uh, David Lodge makes where he goes to a conference in California and someone's writing a book about the influence of T.S. Eliot on Shakespeare, or the, the influence of Joyce on Shakespeare. Uh -huh. And it's all intertextuality, so it can flow in any direction. Yeah. So if Shakespeare influenced Joyce, why like Joyce too influences Shakespeare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, it, he, nice. he, he, has a, he has great fun with it. Uh, so, yeah, thank you. Sure.